And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, March 17th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, new guidance from the Commerce Department for anyone who deals with data. Plus, meet the man who spent decades photographing the affairs of one large cabinet department. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, contractors and the Defense Department components alike are delving deep to understand the White House budget proposal for 2024. The Pentagon introduced its biggest ever proposed budget earlier this week. It's asking for $842 billion. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins us now with a look below the top-line numbers. And before we go into those, Alex, just review the basic top-line numbers that have been rolled out that people are starting to peel back. All right. Thanks, Tom. So as you said, it's $842 billion overall, and that's $26 billion more than the enacted budget for 2023. Uh, in the Navy, which includes the Marines, so that's the Department of the Navy, their 2024 budget request is $256 billion. Uh, that's a 4.5% rise from the enacted budget last year. The Air Force is looking for $259 billion. That's 215 for the Air Force and another 30 for Space Force. That's $9 billion beyond last year's enacted budget. And the Army has a 2024 budget request of $185.5 billion which is 4.6% increase over last year's enacted budget. The totals for the Army reflect both the active duty forces, the Army Reserve, and the Army National Guard and their overseas operation costs. So I guess the days are long past when we had those 40 and 50 and 60 billion overseas contingency operations requests. The slush fund, as they used to call it. Well, these things go back and forth, don't they? All right. And some of the trends. I mean, what are we discerning now? What does this all mean? Except for, yes, more, but everything in the government is up for 2024. So one of the things that I think you and I have talked about a fair amount anyway is recruiting. Uh, the numbers were low last year. Everyone has another option when they look at jobs. And so recruiting numbers were very low last year. And what we saw in this year's budget is all the services adjusted their recruiting numbers to reflect what happened in the past year. The 2024 budget for the Army looks at 452,000 active duty soldiers. Last year, they were looking for 473,000, but they fell 25% short of their goals last year. So it's adjusted to try and make it work this year. It's a similar situation for the Navy. They're looking at 404,000 sailors in 2024, and that's a drop from 411,000 that con Congress funded last year. Overall, the Air Force wants an end strength of 324,700 personnel under the 2024 budget request, and that's a decrease of a little more than 600 people from last year. It's been an ongoing problem for all the services, as I said. Here's Defense Department Comptroller Michael McCord. I will say on the recruiting side, uh, I think you already probably know this, but these are the lowest unemployment rates in the 50-year history of the all-volunteer force. There has always been a correlation, an inverse correlation, between the, the, the uh, job market on the outside and our ability to recruit. Uh, last year, calendar year 22, 3.6%, again, the lowest unemployment rate in over 50 years. And it stayed that, it's staying that low in the first parts of, of this calendar year. So that remains a tough environment. You wonder who's going to uh, staff all of those ships and airplanes and tanks and armored vehicles with those numbers dropping. It sounds like they could almost wish for a bit of a good solid recession to get people back into the uh, market for soldiers, sailors, Air Force and Marine members. And that's the uniform side of things. What about the civilian workforce? Well, one of the things the military is counting on overall is that 5.2% pay raise that's not just the DD, DOD, but across government. And people at the DOD will get that pay raise. And additionally, military service members will see a 4.2 raise in uh, basic allowance for housing. Right. So that should maybe help the recruitment indirectly if people don't think they'll be impoverished if they go into the military. People are pretty concerned about inflation and wondering if that's really going to cover it. But yes, it is a significant raise. And the other big area for DOD is research and development. What are we learning about their priorities there? That's been another big priority in this new proposed budget. And let's just listen to 
Vice Admiral Sarah Joyner, Director of Force Structure, Resources and Assessment for the Joint Staff. She spoke earlier this week at a presentation on the budget for the DOD. The budget request aligns with the strategic guidance and balances department priorities to maintain a ready, lethal, and combat-credible joint force. It represents the largest procurement and R&D levels ever for the DOD. As Mr. McCord mentioned, the national defense strategy and our national leadership make clear that our highest defense priority is to protect the homeland and deter attack on the United States. That was Vice Admiral Sarah Joyner. And looking at some of the things that the money's actually going to be spent on as far as research and development, the Army is uh, looking at some of their top priorities are long-range hypersonic weapons and optionally manned fighting vehicles. The Air Force is looking for $5 billion more in, in research and development than they got last year. And they're building up their B-21 program of long-range bombers. And they're also looking to upgrade and develop the Sentinel system. That system replaces the ICBMs, and it's part of the nuclear triad. The Navy's got something similar going on there, um, more, more strategic arms. They're planning on building 2.4 submarines a year, one Columbia class, which is the ballistic missile submarine, and then one to two Virginia class submarines a year. And if we're selling them to Australia, they have to build up more than that to meet their long-term targets for shipbuilding. Then they're also building uh, surface ships, more submarines, logistic vessels, unmanned systems, and cyber warfare. So that's a lot of uh, heavyweight activity for research and development. Did they mention artificial intelligence, by the way? That's been a kind of a growing area, not a big dollar number, but it's a growing area. Did not come up? It definitely did. Artificial intelligence and unmanned systems kind of go together. And that was another big trend that we saw in things they wanted to build and develop. Um, procurement kind of goes hand in hand with that. They're looking for $170 billion overall, which is $6 billion more than last year. And with that money, they're saying, yeah, we need to build all these things. But at the same time, we, we need to, of course, reform, reform the system. And they were talking a lot about multi-year contracts to try and make things go smoother. Here's Chief of Naval Operations, Michael Gilday. Procurement accounts are 31% of our budget. And there's a lot of dough there. Uh, and so there are ways to look for more efficiencies and then to shift those savings somewhere else. I'm interested in doing more of that. I'm interested in taking a deeper look at where and how we spend our money and where we might be able to make smarter choices. Well, that sounds like good boilerplate, but not a lot of specifics, I guess. Well, there's always a push to reform the system, and I, I guess you think every year this is the year they're going to do it. Well, there is a planning, budgeting, and execution commission that is doing its work with recommendations. Not, not precisely procurement, but they still have, I don't know, 60 or 75 procurement reforms left over from the 809 commission left over from a few years ago. So lots of commissions looking at this year in, year out. But bottom line is numbers are on the rise. They certainly are. And the two requests I really heard loud and clear from Defense Department officials is contractors, please deliver on time. And Congress, please, 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 no CRs. Right. Let's not hear about supply chain. I think that's getting kind of annoying to defense ears. I think I heard one officer say, everybody's got a tough job. Just deliver the goods when we say we want. Uh, yeah, that's great. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, meet the man who spent decades photographing the affairs of one large cabinet department. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Since 1990, my next guest has been photographing the doings of the Health and Human Services Department. That's six administrations and nine secretaries. Now he's put the lens cap on that career. Chris Smith now joins me in studio. Mr. Smith, good to have you with us. 
Thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. It's nice to, nice to be here. And I have to tell people I was looking forward to this interview because in my own personal history, there is a great deal of photography, but it's kind of way in the past when we got our hands wet in the darkroom. That's not so much the case anymore, is it? No, not really. Those day, I miss those days. Those were the, the good old days of photography, and I now we've gone on to digital faster and uh, more efficient in some ways. Now, you think about the White House having staff photographers, some of them quite prominent oh, yeah. and famous. Mm-hmm. One of my professors many years ago had been a White House photographer. But you don't realize in general that departments have a photography role. What was your actual job? What did they charge you with doing? Well, all the departments have photographers assigned to the secretary. My position was to photograph primarily the secretary. So everything, just about everything involving uh, his public events. And there's a lot of those, aren't there? Oh, yeah. It, 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 was, it was quite busy, quite busy. And I did everything from official portraits to grip and grins to studio photography to product photography. I considered myself a jack of all trades and a master of a lot of them. A grip and grin, by the way, for oh. the audience <laughs> is what? Is when the secretary is meeting with a, a, an official or sometimes someone that's not quite as prominent, but a handshake shot. A handshake, smiling at the camera. Exactly. So they're gripping hands and grinning at the camera. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. I know what it means because uh. I've done it quite a few. <laughs> and the technology of photography has really changed a lot. I mean, I think people understand this, but mm-hmm. for working photographers, at some point you have to make the decision, I'm going to leave behind the ectochrome mm-hmm. and the kodachrome yeah. and the, the color film stuff. and yeah. move on to digital. Mm-hmm. I remember back in the film days, uh, the film days kind of for me in HHS stopped around 90, 91 if I had to guess. And I remember we, I would photograph a press conference, go to my darkroom, develop the 35 millimeter film, make a contact sheet pick out an image that I had to then go to the other darkroom, the printing darkroom, and print 500 5 by 7 prints. Then I would produce those, take it to the press shop, and they would take those 500 5 by 7 prints and mail them out. And that was back in those days. Now uh, it's a lot faster. <laughs> right. So did you develop color film or just black and white? Both. But for the press conferences, it was, a, it was primarily black and white film. Got it. And what's it like being around a secretary for 9 to 5 or whatever the day might be. I wish nine to five. <laughs> it's an education. It's learning a lot. It's getting a chance to know the secretaries. Uh, it's in, it's good to know what they like, and more importantly, what they don't like. Yeah, tell us some things. Maybe a secretary said, "Don't do that," or "I don't like that." It's mostly you don't want to crowd their space. You don't want to shoot too much. You really want to kind of be a fly on the wall to kind of just be there and be available. And then when you get a chance to know the secretary, you can kind of feel. What their comfort level of is is of uh, being close to them or just taking pictures. Right. So there must have been a process by which you had to get them to become comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might have known, hey, look, a photographer goes with this position, just like a limousine driver or exactly. a suburban driver and whatever else, mm-hmm. someone to hang up your coat when you come in. But photography is kind of intimate. Mm-hmm. You get close to the person or you get behind them when they're facing out and right. maybe shooting up at them or right. down at them. How did you get that comfort level with, with high-level officials? Well, one of the first things that I really like to do is when the secretary came into the department is one of the first things I wanted to do is meet the secretary and get an introduction to the secretary so they knew who I was. From there, you know, a conversation ensued and and after that you kind of go into work and take some of the some of that from their vibe, what they're what they're looking for. And sometimes I would ask them and they would they would tell me, you know, but it was mostly that first that initial introduction was the important part. Now we said at the top that you had started photographing HHS in nineteen ninety, but that's not when your career started. My first job in the federal government was at NIH, at the National Institute of Health, and I was a darkroom photographer, developing film, making prints, things like that. And I did that for about three years. My first shooting job in the federal government was at the, uh, the Department of the Treasury under Nicholas Brady. And I was there for about oh, about three years or thereabouts. And then I started at HHS in 1990. All right. So the secretary at that time was? Uh, Nicholas Brady. Nicholas Brady. And mm-hmm. what was that like? It was really, it was very cool working that close to the White House. And uh, I don't know if it, was, if it was because of that or because it was dealing with a lot of money. It was very staid. It was very, very uh, conservative, very staid. And at some point, you know, Donna Shalala 
came along, and she might have been the first female secretary. No, I guess she wasn't actually Patricia Roberts Harris she back was, in seventy nine. And she that was before I started my the first secretary that I started working with was uh, Secretary Sullivan, and then it was uh, Secretary Shalala. What was Donna Shalala like? Uh, secretary Shalala was the longest serving uh, secretary of HHS. And I remember Secretary uh, Shalala joking that she wanted to be the longest serving secretary of HHS. And the joke was she was going to get the agents to fly her out to California on her last day. She was a, a workhorse. I mean, she was working all the time. I mean, all the secretaries do, but uh, she was she was at it constantly and uh, had a lot of an injury. And, of course, they came and went with Republican and Democratic, mm-hmm. then Republican and Democratic administrations. You don't talk politics with them. Did you find them all to be pretty much the same to deal with in terms of their bearing in the job, regardless of who had appointed them? Pretty pretty much. And you don't talk politics on, on the job now unless sure. you don't lose your job. So, no. All right. And any particular time that maybe that you had to photograph something for purposes of fulfilling the job as official photographer? Mm-hmm. And yet, it was a really tough situation. Yes, tell us about it. That will times. be on on Capitol Hill. All the secretaries have to go on Capitol Hill, and it's uh, not a pleasant situation for uh, for anybody involved. So you know, the secretaries are being stressed. That all of them are being stressed at that point on Capitol Hill, and you have a lot, a ton of other photographers that are photographing them. Some more aggressively than others, but I still have to be there. In in photograph the secretary, but I don't want to add to that stress level. So that gets to be a little uncomfortable. You have to do that. You have to do your job. You have to perform. And photography's gotten a little bit quieter in those mass situations where, remember, Mm -hmm. they used to have motor drives and it was all this flashing and whirring. I think people Mm -hmm. still have that in mind as the noise of photography, but it's much more silent now. Does that help? That's interesting. It yes, like you were talking about the flashes because of the film sensitivity. Now the sensitivity of the sensors, we've gone from flashes to now digital, where we don't need as much flash. And then with uh, digital, we've gone to pretty much silent. But I, I wonder about that. It's sort of like when, with an event, when the secretary, the president walks in, you know, your first thing you hear are the cameras, and now you're hearing less of that. And you, you would hear the flashes, the cameras, and all the rest of that stuff. Now you're hearing less shutters. We're speaking with Chris Smith, who just recently retired after more than 30 years as an official photographer, mostly with the Health and Human Services Department. And what about photographing secretaries with the president? That must have come up from time to oh, time. Oh, yeah. I, I've done that, with, of course, with uh, every secretary I've served. And that's very – it's very cool going to the White House. I remember uh, one of the White House visits was – I went over to the White House – early in the Obama administration before the secretary was sworn in. So that was a little different because HHS is still, was still in the news. Even at that point, we didn't have a secretary. That would have been Kathleen Sebelius. Th- that is correct, Secretary Sebelius. And did the White House photography staff kind of elbow you aside or think you're a bumpkin from <laughs> one of the departments? You know, that is a good question. It's, it is a definitely a pecking order. It's the White House photographers first, obviously. And then you have the, uh, the press photographers. And there's even a pecking order within the press photographers league. And us lowly departmental photographers are sort of like uh, stepchildren. But you got to get to know people and talk to them and make you know make your acquaintances and things like that. And you fit in. You deal with it. And what about photographing events or photographing situations? I'm thinking of another department, say Interior, has a gigantic library of photography of the national parks and of forests and of different locations people might be. What about HHS? Did you ever have to go out and shoot programs and, and situational, almost like photojournalism? From time to time, yes. Uh, and I would work closely with my colleagues at NIH. They had a wealth of, uh, of uh, photography uh, in terms of library. But from time to time, I would go out to different situations in uh, healthcare settings. And, and it was pretty the, rare. Does the government provide gear? Oh, HHS has been great. I've had a great boss, Michael Wilker, and he's been really good at providing me good equipment. And he's part of the public affairs apparatus. Yes. Mm -hmm. Got it. I'm an assistant secretary of public affairs. And what about personal photography? Is it something you plan to pursue in Oh, in retirement? Yeah, I will, in retirement, I'll do a couple of different things for personal photography and also still professional photography. I'm still planning on prefer, on freelancing on the commercial level. Right. So no weddings or bar mitzvahs? On the commercial level, so no, level, so no weddings, no bar mitzvahs, things like that. I'm going on is to back to the commercial roots. Family? Wife, I'm Pat Talbert Smith. I've been married to her for 38 years, best years of my life. At Courtney Simone Smith-Carevo, who's... Uh, 
now living in San Diego with her husband, and uh, we have a brand new grandson of five months, Nate Carevo. So the first thing you got to do is get out there and take some great baby pictures. There you go. There you go. And unrelated to your career, you have an interesting background with respect to your dad and grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad, Theodore P. Smith, and my father-in-law, Edward James Talbert, were both Tuskegee Airmen, documented original Tuskegee Airmen. Wow. What did you learn from that or take away from that? It was something that uh, those guys talked about later on in life, and especially my dad uh, and talked about later on in life. And also my father-in-law. They had great heritage, great work ethic, great guys that overcame adversity and did well in their lives. Work hard. And when you went to the art and photography career choice and went to college to study that, your dad didn't say, what about the Air Force? No, he didn't at that point. He was a, a retired D.C. fireman. And I learned a lot from him. And I, uh, I was an EMT for a little bit on, on the com- private side. But when I wanted to go into photography, actually, he was a amateur photographer. But so, he liked running toward danger. That's, that's why he was probably an amateur photographer to get rid of some of that stress. <laughs> Chris Smith is recently retired as official photographer for Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll post this interview plus a few of his photos at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, union negotiations at Veterans Affairs are stuck in a rut for a decade so far. But first, new guidance from the Commerce Department for anyone who deals with data and personally identifiable information. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tennant here on Federal News Network. Everyone knows data is the essential element in improving government operations, understanding trends in the world, and solving big problems. Yet sometimes data can reveal too much, like people's personal information. That's why data sets have to undergo what's known as de-identification. Now the National Institute of Standards and Technology has updated crucial guidance on how to do this. For more, we turn to NIST computer scientist Simpson Garfinkel. Mr. Garfinkel, good to have you with us. Thank you very much. And... Tell us exactly why de-identification is required. Is it because of the application to which the data might be applied, or why do people need to do this? Well, I think we need to to step back a bit. Federal agencies operating under the Open Data Act are required to make data sets in their possession available to the public. Many federal data sets don't have any privacy-sensitive information in them, but some do, and some have information that's uh, sensitive for businesses. So agencies that want to make those data sets available to the public need to have some way of removing the information in those data sets that could damage privacy, damage proprietary interests, while still providing value to data users. And that's the topic that the draft publication that was just closed for comment, that's the point of that publication. Right. And this is a reissue of some older guidance. So what has changed now? What caused NIST to decide that you need to get a new draft out there and get comments? Well, actually, it's not a reissue of older guidance. The guidance was never issued. Back in uh, 2016, a draft was published, and then due to uh, a number of internal issues, that draft was never finalized. And so over the years, there's been an effort to finish that draft and actually bring it across the, the finish line. And so that's what this is about. Until a NIST document is issued, it's not guidance, it's just a draft document. Got it. But uh, what was the issue the last time around? People overwhelmed comments or it just you said it was an internal issue? Uh, the issue was that the, the individuals working on it were working on other projects. All right. And when you do de-identify, then it sounds like it's just a matter of removing 
certain information from a database and leaving the rest, or is it more complicated than that? Well, unfortunately, it's a lot more complicated than that. Many years of experience have shown us that if you simply remove obvious information and release a data set, that that information can be revealed through manipulations of the data set or by linking the information that remains in the data set with other data sets that are publicly available. In a previous NIST document, we detailed that. In this document, we reference that document, and we also provide some more concrete guidance. I could give you an example if you would like. Yeah, please do. Right. So one of the famous examples is that in the 1990s, there was a a request from the New York City Taxi and License Commission for a list of uh, all the taxi paths, and uh, that was... uh, released under their Freedom of Information Act, their equivalent of it. And uh, the taxi medallion numbers had been transformed, so they weren't obvious. And the uh, start and end locations of every taxi drive was left in the data set. So uh, one of the first things that was done was that people realized that the transformation for the taxi medallion numbers could be backed out. It was hashed into a sequence of into an alphanumeric code, but it was possible to take all possible taxi medallion numbers, hash them, and match that up. And then uh, other people noticed that if you looked at the start location and at the end location, there were some locations that were unique for individuals. So it was possible, for example, to see people who were starting a taxi ride at a strip club and ending that taxi ride at a residence. And then you could infer that there was some relationship between the person who lived at that residence and the the strip club. We're speaking with Simpson Garfinkel. He's a computer scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So the guidance that you are hoping to publish, now that you have the comments in the draft, when it becomes published, will be designed for technical people to know how to de-identify thoroughly, or will it be for maybe higher level people, or not higher level, but people that are less concerned with the technical details that need to understand that their data that they release is safe? Well, this is a a guidance for government agencies, and the private industry is welcome to look at it. And it's meant for both uh, data practitioners, as well as for policy uh, people in the privacy office. And it's also meant for regulators to consider. It's general principles for de-identifying government data sets. So the the previous publication I wanted to reference was uh, NISTR, N-I-S-T-I-R, 8053, De-Identification of Personal Information. And, and that was published in October 2015. It's still current, and it has uh, many examples of um, information data sets that were released that were thought to be properly de-identified that were not properly de-identified. And there's a term differential privacy that comes into this, and that is somehow different from de-identification. Can you explain that concept? So de-identification is a a general principle. It's a goal. Some people use it as a specific set of mechanisms, and the NISTER talks about the differences, and the SP-800-188 discusses differential privacy as an approach that might be used for de-identification. Differential privacy is a mathematical definition of privacy that has been developed since 2006. It was used in the 2020 census to release data sets of uh, the number of people living in on each block of the United States, and it's going to be used for other data products from the 2020 census. And the idea of differential privacy is to carefully control the privacy loss that individuals suffer when their private data is used to create a public statistical product. Differential privacy is one approach that you could use for de-identification. There are other approaches Unfortunately, there's less mathematical or formal basis for those other approaches. Uh, People who use them hope that they work. 
they're much more, say, aspirational than differential privacy, but there's no way to know if they actually are working. And, and that's uh, one of the problems that they, we have with them. Right. So then just to get back to de-identification there, the objective is such that when the data set is released and has been de-identified, nobody can make correlations through some other means and reconstruct what was taken out with respect to personally identifiable information? So that's actually not true, unfortunately. There's no way to have an absolute guarantee of privacy or an absolute guarantee that there's no risk. We can simply lower the amount of risk and we can lower the amount of privacy loss that individuals suffer. One of the reasons that we've had some challenges in getting this out is that there's a lot of disagreements in the data user community between people who are using old legacy techniques for de-identification where they believe that they could have an absolute assurance of safety and people who are up with the current mathematics, uh, the, the current research, which shows that there is no way to be totally safe. Uh, differential privacy forces you to confront that and techniques that don't use differential privacy are more sort of like, um, you know, fire and hope. Like you, you, you use the approach, you think that it's going to work, but there's really no mathematical underlying basis that it will work. And, and that's what leads to the sort of privacy problems that we documented in this, in Mr. 8053. Okay, so people should read both. And you mentioned that the comments were closed as we speak. If someone still wants to comment, will you take it in and have a look? I'm sure I'll receive any comments that come in, even if they come in after the window. We just can't guarantee that for significant comments that we'd be able to take them into account. But we'll certainly look at them. Simpson Garfinkel is a computer scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the new guidance or the draft at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Identify with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, union negotiations at Veterans Affairs are still stuck in a rut for a decade so far. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Department of Veterans Affairs and its biggest unions seem far from an agreement on a new labor contract after a decade or so of negotiating. An arbitrator finds VA violated ground rules it established with the American Federation of Government Employees when they reopened contract negotiations last year. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the attorney representing AFGE's National VA Council, Ibadan Roberts. So when President Biden came in, VA and AFGE came to agreement, what we called a global settlement agreement on how to restart labor management relations, which included how to restart the bargaining over a successor agreement. And so in that global settlement agreement, we agreed that the parties can each pick up to six articles to reopen, and they had to be one of the articles that went to the Federal Service Impasses Panel. So it couldn't be an article we agreed on. It had to be something that was still in dispute, which was most of the contract anyway. We started bargaining January, late February last year and had gotten through three sessions. Our sessions are two weeks on, two weeks off. It's a grueling schedule. We got through three sessions when the union filed the first national grievance over the department's conduct during negotiations and ended up filing a second grievance. So the first one was in May, the second one was in July over their continued conduct. And so this arbitrator ruled in our favor after three days of hearing that the department did engage in bad faith conduct, which really disrupted the bargaining process. Okay. And in this case, what is constituting bad faith negotiating? 
So there are several parts here. And the way I think about it, the department was part inexperienced, part ignorant of federal sector labor law, and then part sympathetic to the substance of the Trump executive order. So first, when I say inexperienced, I'm referring to just working with unions and how to bargain, not putting take it or leave it offers on the table. That's one of her findings. They would say to us almost 50 times in a day that they disagreed with us. They disagreed with our interests, but then they wouldn't propose anything to try to come to agreement. We're required to come to the table with a sincere resolve to reach agreement. And if all you say is we disagree and you never want to try to meet each other's interests, you're not going to get to agreement. So that's part of their issue. Part of not knowing the ignorance of the federal sector labor law is insisting that the union waive our statutory rights, such as our statutory right to bargain. They had several proposals. The department made several proposals that would waive the union's right to bargain over conditions of employment of our bargaining unit employees. And so she found several instances. She found three instances where they did insist on us waiving our rights. And then the last part being this sympathy to the substance of the Trump executive order, the department proposed to seriously cut benefits to employees, such as proposals for reprimands. We currently have that reprimands have to be proposed, the employee gets a chance to respond before a final decision is made. The department came in to take away proposals and wanted to offer nothing in exchange for it, nothing at all. So in the federal sector, if you want to change current language, you have to have a really good reason to do so. So that's what we call there's a higher burden if you want to change what's in the current language. But VA came to the table and had no reason for the change and would offer things like, give me your arm or give me your leg. And so obviously the union would say, no, you can't get my arm or leg. Let's talk about these other things that we can do to have the best contract for our employees, for the department as well. Okay, so the discipline piece of things seems to be one of the outstanding issues here. Are there other major concerns here that just the VA was not offering a a counterproposal on? There were several. So we wanted to do a big overhaul of the awards article. That's one of the things that unions can play a big role in because they're not considered a management right. So we can bargain substantively We can bargain over how it's done and when it's done and who it goes to. And so that was some of the department would say, no, we want it to be like a recommendation from the union and we make the final decision. We don't want you to play a role in that. Um, And so we disputed that. They didn't want to talk about our Title 38 hybrid employees. These are employees who are appointed or promoted under Title 38, but they have everything else, all their other rights come from Title V. So we call them Title 38 hybrid employees. And VA wanted us to waive our rights to bargain awards for them. And they're not pure Title 38, where the secretary has authority to limit our bargaining, these employees, most of their rights come from Title V. There is no limitation from the secretary for these employees. But that was one of their proposals, was to waive any right we had to bargain over awards for that large group of employees at the department. There were also a PIP case. We filed a national grievance over VA's refusal to provide employees performance improvement plans before taking a performance-based action against them. And VA did this because they felt the Accountability Act allowed them to no longer give employees performance improvement plans. So we filed a grievance on that. We won that grievance. That was arbitrator Jerome Ross. VA filed exceptions. The FLRA upheld the arbitrator's award. VA filed for reconsideration. The FLRA denied the reconsideration. So several times we were in front of the FLRA with this case. And during this bargaining, during our term successor agreement bargaining, VA was failing to recognize the FLRA's decision on that Jerome Ross award. So we were spending days arguing with the VA over something that is settled. The FLRA settled it finally that this award was correct, that we are allowed to require PIP before performance-based actions, even if taken under the Accountability Act. And the department officials at the table were refusing to recognize it. Their words 
to us where the SLRA is wrong. So that's part of what we've been dealing with, things that shouldn't be in dispute we are disputing and not actually getting to the heart of what the negotiations need to be. And so that is bad faith, and we're glad the arbitrator found it. And VA really needs to do better at this bargaining table. Just to circle back on something you'd said earlier, just to clarify, when you talk about authority that AFGE has in terms of awards, this is financial awards we're talking about especially now that the VA has more authority to do that under the PACT Act? Right. So these are like performance awards. If you're performing very well at work, they can give you awards for that, time off awards, um, special advancement for achievement awards. So there are a number of different awards VA can give, and we're allowed to bargain over all of those, how they're given out, how much is given out, as long as it isn't already limited by OPM regulations. We're allowed to bargain over the entirety of it. And that was one of the things that VA was resisting and just telling us that they disagreed and not giving any counterproposals on it. Ibadan Roberts, an attorney representing AFGE's VA National Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And this special program note, be sure to register for Federal News Network's third annual DOD Cloud Exchange, Tuesday, March 21st through Thursday the 23rd. Learn the latest and most crucial developments in moving cloud services to the tactical edge. Day one explores the enterprise cloud when we'll hear from Deputy Defense CIO Lily Zalecki and Special Operations Command Chief Technical Officer Mark Taylor. Register now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still annoyed by the Trump administration's relocation of two agriculture department bureaus, my next guest has introduced legislation to raise the bar for agency moves. It would require agencies to do some homework before they move. With more on his bill, Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen. Senator Van Hollen, good to have you on. Tom, it's great to be with you. And you had introduced this bill in the last Congress, and I noticed it gained one page. But thank you for only having a nine-page bill fairly simple what you're calling for? Right. And I've teamed up with Representative Weston from Virginia once again on this common sense legislation, which simply requires that federal agencies, before they undertake large moves, for example, one that took place during the Trump administration from the Washington, D.C. area to Kansas City, that before they undertake such a move, they do a cost-benefit analysis to determine whether it's in the best interests of the agency's mission and in the best interests of the taxpayer. So that's the idea. We would have hoped that agencies would do this as a matter of course. They don't, and so this would require them to do so before undertaking these kind of moves. And one detail in the bill is to involve the inspector general of the agency. In the case of agriculture, it would have been the agriculture IG. And what do they bring to it? Well, you want an independent look because if an agency is undertaking a move or planning a move, the assumption is that the political folks in the agency have made that determination. So we're looking for somebody who has an independent take, a fresh look. Again, in order to protect the mission of the agency and the taxpayer. Back in 2019, what happened was the uh, Secretary of Agriculture decided to move two agencies within that department, the Economic Research Service and the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, to move them to the Kansas City region from the Washington, D.C. area. It involved huge disruptions. They lost a lot of their expertise and knowledge, and a lot of employees didn't go. And as the GAO pointed out, they also lost some of the diversity of their workforce in that move. So the purpose of this legislation that Representative Wexton and I reintroduced is simply to require an independent cost-benefit analysis before agencies undertake these significant moves. And I think there was a third one, not from agriculture, that moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, too, at that time. That's right. The Bureau of Land Management moved their headquarters to Colorado, and the GAO, Government Accountability Office, looked at that as well and concluded that they did not conduct a full cost-benefit analysis before making that move. So, yes, this legislation would have applied to that move and any future move made by agencies. Again, I would think that every taxpayer would want an independent cost-benefit analysis done 
to make sure that these moves are in the interests of the country and in the interests of the taxpayer. Now, in recent memory, some agencies have moved nearby, like I remember EPA moved out of some of the worst buildings known to mankind in this hemisphere since torn down. That was a number of years ago. And now the FBI looks like it's finally going to get up and move to either Virginia or you're hoping to Prince George's County, Maryland. Would those be covered by this legislation, that type of move? Well, in these cases, there's a big analysis undertaken in terms of the mission of the FBI, for example, and and cost to taxpayers. I mean, in Maryland, we are asking the GSA to make sure that they value a number of criteria equally and that they make sure that cost to taxpayer is a significant part of that because we demonstrated that moving the FBI to Virginia would cost a minimum of $1 billion more to the federal taxpayer than moving to either of the Maryland sites. But, you know, clearly a move of an agency within a particular region, in this case within the Washington metropolitan region, does not cause the kind of disruption to workforce that a move from the D.C. region to Kansas City entails. We're speaking with Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, and the bill regarding the relocation requirements for federal agencies did not get through the busy schedule of the 117th. Now we're in the divided 118th. Do you have any Republican co-sponsors that you're aware of either in the House or anybody joining you in the Senate? We do not yet have Republican co-sponsors. We're going to work to accomplish that. I would hope that anybody, regardless of party, would want to look before they leap, especially when you're dealing with taxpayer dollars, that they'd want to make sure agencies are making an assessment about whether a planned move will be consistent with their mission, not cause disruptions to the mission, and be in the interest of taxpayers. So you would hope that that would be a nonpartisan objective, and we're going to be working toward that. I was going to say, if the Trump administration moves were for political purposes, I'm not sure what they would have been, given the small amount of people being moved, but nevertheless, then I would think both parties would want to keep the other one from doing that, depending on who's in the White House. Well, that's right. I think members of Congress, regardless of party, should want to ensure that when federal agencies are making major moves, that they're doing so in a way that's in the best interests of the mission of the agency, as well as the taxpayer. And that should be true regardless of whether um, a Democratic president is in the White House or a Republican president is in the White House. And just switching gears here for a minute while we have you, I wanted to ask you about the federal return to the office, which seems to be an agency-by-agency decision at this point. There's pressure from the District of Columbia. They want some certainty of what type of office occupancy is going to look like, so maybe some federal space can be repurposed or you know, given back, unleashed. What's your sense of where this is all going to head? Because it seems to be stasis at this point. Well, I do think agencies need to take a very close look at this question because President Biden will soon declare an end to the pandemic emergency. So people should be making sure that they're accomplishing the goals of their agencies. That means that if an agency says that it needs its people back in the office, that should be the case. On the other hand, we learned that there can be some flexibility in the workforce, the telework can have advantages both in terms of the agency as well as the employee. So this is a moment to sort of look and determine based on the agency's needs and mission, you know, to what extent can they have some greater flexibility than they did pre-pandemic. But the key is to make sure that the policies accomplish the mission of an agency. If people need to be at work in person to accomplish that goal, then We need to make sure people are back in person to the extent they can achieve the mission with some job flexibility, then people should have that accommodation so long as it's consistent with the mission. So this is a time when I think different agencies are making those determinations. Yeah, because I said District of Columbia, but even if you look at your own state of Maryland, there's a kind of a belt of federal large degree of employment stretching from Bethesda to Baltimore, really. And a lot of that is in federally owned facilities, but a lot of that is lease space, too. Well, that's right. Again, the primary objective here should be to meet the missions of the federal agencies. And so this will require, I think, a really good close look because we can't just continue.
continue on with you know business as usual as it was i shouldn't say as usual as it was during the pandemic on the other hand i think the pandemic taught us some lessons about our ability to have some more workplace flexibility so figuring out exactly what the sweet spot is is something every agency needs to do so you would say then that should be up to agency by agency and we don't need a grand pronouncement say from the office of personnel management Well, I think the Office of Personnel Management needs to be clear that agencies need to adopt policies that maximize the success of their mission. And look, we're going to be keeping a very close look on this, meaning the members of Congress. I chair an appropriations subcommittee that oversees a lot of federal agencies. Others oversee other agencies. So I do think we need a coherent policy, but not every agency of government depends on the same workforce requirements in terms of being there in person full time. But again, I think that this is something that we should at least have an articulated policy that governs the actions of every agency. That doesn't mean every agency has the exact same policy, but we do need some overall guidance. All right. And then also, there's a lot of proposals going around now for the federal pay raise. There's the FAIR Act, which I think does have bipartisan support in both houses. Not sure how extensive that is for the 8.7. And then there's the Biden administration 5.2 proposal. What's your expectation of where this is going to come out, do you think, for federal employees? Well, I'm a supporter of the FAIR Act. I think that it's really important that federal employees are paid at their full value, and that would mean the greater amount. At the same time, I think that the increase that President Biden and the Biden administration have put forward, 5.2 percent, is a really important step in the right direction. So we'll be working to try to bump that up. But the way it works is that unless Congress substitutes its judgment on the pay increase, the president's proposal will prevail. And I think that in this case, Republicans in the Congress are going to be very reluctant and resistant to increasing it above 5.2 percent. We're going to work to encourage them to do that, uh, but at least this is a very respectable place to be, this meaning what what President Biden has proposed. And 5.2 percent across the board is better than 4.7 for base and 4. whatever it was, half for base salary, half for locality pay. The net is greater with 5.2 across the board than 8.7 divided in half. Right. So again, what the president's put forward, I think, is a very respectable proposal. And I will oppose any effort by Republicans in Congress to roll that back as we move through the process. Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, thanks so much. Good to be with you. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the legislation at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come, meet the man who spent decades photographing the affairs of one large cabinet department. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen.